Welcome to the Armchair Trader podcast. Uh, this week we have a very exciting guest on. It's uh, Seti Coscarella, CEO of TAP Lifestyle and Wellness, uh, which is a company we've been covering in depth on the website. If you want to go and have a look at some of the articles we've got up there already. Um, but uh, today we have an opportunity to put some questions to Seti about the company and about what we think is actually a very revolutionary approach to a tobacco alternative which we we believe has very strong growth prospects both in the, in the US market and internationally as well. Uh, so uh, welcome to the podcast, Seti. Thank you, Stuart. Happy to be here. I appreciate all the, uh, the hard work in terms of uh, covering our story and, and getting it out to your subscribers. Can you just give us a, a summary of, of what TAT is and what it's, what it's setting out to do? Absolutely. So I used to work at, at Philip Morris, and, and while there, I spent a lot of time on their reduced-risk product portfolio, specifically on a product called Icos, which for your listeners in the UK, uh, they may be familiar with, uh, with that particular product. Now, in working on commercializing this particular product, I worked with thousands of smokers to better understand what it is that they like about smoking, what it is that they don't like about smoking, and how we could otherwise uh, position this product to fit within their lifestyle. What I learned is that you'd be hard pressed to find a smoker that enjoys the fact they're addicted to nicotine. And when you take a look at all of the various alternative products, whether it's heat not burn like Icos or vape, uh, nicotine patches, all of these other sort of alternatives, cigarettes included, none of them deliver an experience without nicotine. And in my mind, it's predominantly driven by the industry's inability to understand how to sell something that isn't addictive. Uh, I kind of viewed it more as, as a crutch when I first started talking about this product because it's non-addictive. Uh, people would say, well, why, why do you think people would buy this product? Almost incredulously. I said, well, you know, take a look at something like, I don't know, peanut butter. I like peanut butter. I finished my jar of peanut butter. When I'm done, I go to the store and buy another jar of peanut butter. Peanut butter is not addictive. Neither is practically anything else you buy. You buy it because you like it, not because you're otherwise addicted. And I think for a lot of smokers, that's a, a challenge that has yet to be overcome. So when I took a look at what was available in the market, I got introduced to this company called Tat. Tat makes a combustible cigarette that is non-addictive. So our filler material is called Beyond Tobacco. So it's a proprietary blend of different plant material that doesn't include tobacco and does not have nicotine. One of the components is hemp. Now with hemp uh, comes the presence of CBD. So what we're looking to do is replace nicotine with CBD. Now, there are other hemp cigarettes that exist those hemp cigarettes otherwise taste like you're smoking cannabis. When you take a look at a smoker and you look at some of these other alternatives, I found that they don't tend to work long term. So take vaping as an example, which is a growing category in, uh, in the UK. Vaping, while reducing or potentially reducing the harm on the emissions, tastes more like a blueberry pancake than it does a cigarette. And for actual smokers, that transition can be challenging. It's appealing at first because 
you'll otherwise enjoy the taste. I mean, who doesn't like blueberry pancakes? But when you really kind of step back and think about it, I can't imagine a product someone consumes with the frequency of cigarettes and doesn't get sick of the taste. So pizza, I use usually use pizza as an example because everyone kind of likes pizza. Right, Stuart, I think you like pizza, right? I do. I do like pizza, yeah. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Well, I, I can't have 20 slices of pizza every day for 20 years and not get sick of the taste of pizza eventually. Take a look at something like a cigarette. A smoker will smoke the same brand of cigarettes 15 to 20 times a day every day for 20 years and on the 21st year go out and buy that same pack of cigarettes again. The, the taste and experience is a very important part of what we in the industry would call the, the ritual of smoking. And where the industry in general thinks that nicotine is the main reason why people smoke, it isn't. You know, the, that ritual of smoking is as important a part, if not more so. Because if it were just the nicotine, for everyone who wants to quit, the nicotine patch would otherwise work. But it doesn't. The gums, the patches, the lozenges, even the vapes for the vast majority of actual smokers. You know, we find that after about four to five months, they tend to go back to smoking a cigarette. The taste and experience they otherwise prefer. The vape is a compromise. And much like a diet, compromises don't tend to work. So I know it's a bit of a long-winded intro, but you kind of take a look at that and say, all right, well, why don't we take a look at replicating the taste and ritualistic experience of smoking, which is what we were able to do with our Beyond Tobacco. So we've got a patent pending process that transforms the taste profile of that proprietary plant blend into something that behaves exactly like tobacco. Then we package it in a format that is the same as a cigarette. But effectively what we do is replace the addictive nicotine, which as a standalone drug has no efficacy whatsoever. It's actually probably the most useless drug you can ever imagine, it doesn't do anything. And we otherwise replace it with CBD. Now, CBD as a molecule has anti-anxiety properties that will counterbalance or counteract the nicotine withdrawal symptoms that a smoker experiences. So when they use our product, they won't feel a difference. In fact, I believe they'll probably end up feeling a bit better. When they move over to a product like TAT, after a certain period of time, they'll actually have the freedom to choose because it's non-addictive. And that's where I think the real power to the consumer or the, the real powerful message lies. The reason ultimately why we exist is to help give the billion and a half smokers in the world the power to choose. So you can decide if you want to have a cigarette, when you want to have a cigarette. If you want to smoke, smoke. If you don't want to smoke, don't smoke. It's fine by me. But at least then we can have you choose whether or not you want to have one as opposed to need to have one. And I think that for the vast majority of the market, that's a very powerful, uh, a powerful choice we're, we're putting back into their hands. And for me, I think that's a sort of a, a noble endeavor because there isn't anyone on the tobacco or vape side that's looking to do that. That's the thing. That's the thing that really fascinates me about this, because it is. Um, it, and, and I think I should really emphasize the, the fact that, that this is not a product that you're selling to non-smokers. This is specifically a product that's being sold to people who are already 
existing smokers and and part of the distribution strategy as i understand it is you want to position this in the places where people normally go um you know smokers go to buy their cigarettes this is really intended for someone who's already a smoker and is maybe looking for an alternative or a way out of that exactly right i i kind of Try to I, I tried to leverage uh, some learnings from other industries. So if you take a look at Beyond Meat as an example, right? At the end of the day, Beyond Meat, it, it's a veggie burger. If it was positioned as a veggie burger, I don't think anybody would have cared. Now, where I thought Beyond Meat did an extraordinary job is they took a look at that veggie burger category and figured out a way on how to process a, a consumer-ready product that looks like meat, feels like meat, tastes like meat, cooks like meat, heck, it even bleeds like meat with beet juice. And they put it in the meat aisle. They didn't put it in the frozen food section with all the other veggie burgers. Because the way I see it, and again, I could be wrong, but I don't believe that Beyond Meat is entirely made for vegetarians. It's made for people who would otherwise eat meat that are looking for an alternative, and that's why they placed it there. And because of that positioning, I think they did extraordinarily well and did a great job in terms of distancing themselves from being categorized as a veggie burger, which is otherwise what they are. For us, it's a similar, a similar strategy, right? We've used a different blend of plants. We figured out a way on how to make it behave like tobacco. We've taken out the addictive element and replaced it with something that isn't, that will still satiate that nicotine withdrawal and then we want to place it in the same place cigarette smokers would otherwise go to buy a pack of cigarettes and you're absolutely right i'm not here to recruit people to the category there's a billion and a half people who smoke there's plenty of market to go after and problems to solve i'm not here to try to create a new one and that's why when we looked at what flavors do we want to offer we want to offer flavors that tobacco smokers would otherwise find appealing so we made it taste like a cigarette. You know, in the US, for instance, menthol, we have a menthol variant because menthol is a big variety in uh, in the US. And that's really the way that we, we envision going after the market, right? Giving our target consumer a product that they can otherwise feel comfortable using at a price point that doesn't matter what pack of cigarettes you buy, you can afford because we didn't think that freedom to choose should come at a premium. Unlike the very advanced veggie burgers, you're actually, you have the flexibility to, to price it at um, less than the price of tobacco. Correct. And I think that's also an important strategy, right? So we wanted to make sure that we could, we could launch in market at a price point um, that any smoker could otherwise afford. You know, when you think of a consumer that goes into a convenience store or a tuck shop to to buy a pack of cigarettes, the only question they could potentially ask is, what's your cheapest smoke? I mean, you don't really get people that come in and say, what's your best or what's new? To, to really commercialize this properly, we wanted to make sure that we could always be the answer to that question. And I think as smokers start to migrate over, other smokers start to see that. And if they have a good experience, which I think they will, then I think it'll start uh, start growing within that community. And that's really the way that we kind of look at it, right? Make sure that it's available in places where people would otherwise buy cigarettes. 
let's get our marketing and promotion out and and target it in a way that we believe smokers would otherwise find uh, appealing. And and hopefully, you know, once we get it out, the the response will be as positive as as I anticipated to be. I mean, so far uh, we've started. Uh, so we we're launching initially in Ohio, in the U.S. and we started seeding the market with advertising about three weeks ago. And in those three weeks, we've been able to sign up over 3,200 people to our database. We've distributed ads over 12 million times. And the response has been very positive. Like people, because we can see it on the back end, people are actually starting to share the ads. So when I look at the heat map in the US, while the biggest bubble would be in Ohio, you're starting to see pockets start to spring up in various other states around the US. And we're starting to get inbound emails now of people saying, hey, I want to carry it here. Hey, I'd love to buy a carton. Hey, I, th I think this can really help me, which which is all you know positive. I think that the product will, will be a, an extraordinary success once we get it out into the market. And I think a lot of smokers will, will find it a, a very appealing option. This is a proprietary material you have here that's going in these cigarettes. This is not something that uh, another company can necessarily easily replicate, but also you are filing patents to protect that IP as well? Correct. So one of the things that, that I took a hard look at when I started, so I started here the beginning of August, and I, I took a look at the product, where we were at in terms of the product development phase, what the taste profile was of the product, and while I thought it was good, I knew there were some changes that needed to be made and I was very proactive in terms of trying to find places where we might be able to apply some intellectual property or procure intellectual property. And what we found was once we sort of broke through with a discovery on how to better process that plant material into something that behaves like tobacco instead of uh, primarily hemp, it, we found that process was otherwise novel and we subsequently applied for patent on it. So uh, I wouldn't say that it's an easy process to kind of get from the beginning state to the end state. But even if someone were able to figure it out, we wanted to ensure that we would have protection against it. So that's what we filed for patent. And, and as we continue to grow, we'll look at procuring additional patents, putting together a very robust strategy on IP so that we can protect company know-how and and structure it accordingly so that you know we'll have that runway to uh to succeed and really create value uh both for our consumers and our shareholders you've now actually set up a factory in um in nevada um where you are in the process of uh manufacturing your first batches of of beyond tobacco and uh, you are you have actually um, invested in increasing the production capacity even before it it hits the shelves in in Ohio. Is that because you're anticipating uh, more demand than you initially thought? Yes. Again, I mean, when I look at it, commercialization for me is a very deliberate thing. It's not an accidental thing. So, you know, when, when you kind of pick. Uh, a state like Ohio and there's strategic reasons why why I chose Ohio but you start taking a look at what the smoking incidence rate is how many smokers you could otherwise service what an appropriate share of market we think we could otherwise attain how quickly we'll start attaining it and we're starting to build out those projection models now it quickly 
starts outpacing what our initial capacity was. And for a product like this, you know, we'll we'll endeavor to to expand as quickly as we can throughout the state. But as we're doing so, then we're looking at bringing on additional states so that we can begin our commercialization efforts there. Uh, Ohio, for us, works very much like a, a toehold that then we can look to expand out from. And if we're going to do that successfully, there's obviously lead times that that need to be addressed so that we can produce our beyond tobacco product uh, at the appropriate rate. And that's why we we went in and expanded. So when we tested the product with some smokers uh, prior to launch, the response was overwhelmingly positive. Uh, people that we sort of handed a pack to after about a day and a half are calling us saying, we're, we're, I, need a, I want another pack. Where can I get this? I actually really like the way I feel or I like the taste profile or this is way more enjoyable than a cigarette. This tastes better than a cigarette. I like the experience better. So based on that feedback, we figured it, it's probably worth our while to, to expand that production capability because I think it will perform well in market. And I never want to be in a position where we've done a lot of hard work on the back end only to have a supply issue on the front end. No, you wouldn't want that, would you? With a massive demand and not enough product to be able to uh, distribute to it. Exactly. And that's why we kind of focused our attention uh, on one state to start. So that way we can go in, uh, solicit the appropriate consumer feedback. And the thing with consumer packaged good products or fast moving consumer goods like this, it, inevitably, it's always an iterative process. You, you, you get a product into market, you'll start soliciting consumer feedback. You know, obviously, there'll be a percentage of people who really like it and they'll be, you know, your early consumers. But then you can also look at the feedback that you would otherwise get to continuously make product improvements. I mean, it's it's extraordinarily rare that you sort of hit your final product on your first go and that there's no future iterations that happen. I mean, take a look at the iPhone, for instance, right? The iPhone today looks significantly different than the first iPhone that came out just because consumer preferences and how things change and what consumers find desirable. And, and we always want to make sure that we have a, a keen ear to the ground in terms of listening to our consumers so that we can continue to deliver a product to them that they can trust, enjoy, and and will fulfill their other their needs. And I think that the, it's an important piece for us as we start to grow our business that we never lose sight of that. So it's it's a, it's a, an iterative process. And then I think there's also the opportunity to further expand with different brands. So if you take a look at Marlboro as an example, right? Now, Marlboro is the best-selling cigarette in the world, right? Yeah. Now, Marlboro globally would have a market share of about 5 6%, which is great. But on the flip side, it means about 19 out of 20 people don't like Marlboro, which is fine. I mean, I think Philip Morris does pretty good with the one that does. But for all the rest of the 19, they've got 100 other brands that they can otherwise go out and buy. And I think I kind of take a look at the market the same way. Like the way the tobacco industry sort of works, it's rare that you're going to have sort of one product that everyone's going to gravitate to or one brand that everyone's going to gravitate to. It's no different than any other marketplace. So as we start to grow, it'll be imperative for us to introduce new brands that have different brand characteristics, different taste profiles that can uh, attract different uh, segments of the market. And that way, uh, I think it allows us to get broader coverage across the uh the smoker market with brands and uh, flavor profiles that they would otherwise find appealing.
you touched on it just briefly, but what was the rationale behind going into Ohio? Because obviously you've got the US market ahead of you. That's a really big market. And you've you've picked out this one state to to do the launch. What was the what was the rationale behind that? I'll give you a high level. I mean, I, I don't want to sort of tell everybody the, the specifics of how I determine what markets to go into next. But from a smoking standpoint, Ohio has one of the higher smoking incidence rates than uh, across the U.S. Uh, if you take a look at CPG companies in general, typically what they'll do is go into a market and launch a product, build out their consumer journey, understand the the type of marketing that's going to work, how it's going to resonate with consumers, uh, the commercialization piece, how you're going to supply your wholesalers, build out that infrastructure, how the wholesalers will then supply the, the retailers, the messaging that's required in order to sell it through, the type of training that's required on the retailer so that they can communicate the brand message over to consumers that ask how to seed the market with advertising. I mean, there's a hundred other things that you kind of need to do. I mean, most people, because it's not really something that would be top of mind. Right. For most consumers, you go to the grocery store, you want to buy a jar of ketchup, you buy a jar of ketchup. There's an extraordinary amount of work that goes in on the back end to make sure that jar of ketchup is always there. That's the infrastructure that needs to get built. Now, when you look at Ohio, as I mentioned, you know, you go into specific markets to really understand how to commercialize within the country. And Ohio typically tends to be a market that most CPG companies would initially launch a product in because it is fairly representative uh, for the rest of the US. So the knowledge that you gain there, if you know what questions you're asking and you know what it is that you need to go out and learn, can prove very valuable as you start to expand uh, into other markets. So that's sort of the high level reason why I chose Ohio. And you know, from a strategic standpoint, it's a great entry point into the US because from there, there's other high profile states that I would look at surrounding it that we can then leverage with our marketing and distribution channels to get into as well shortly thereafter. We're not talking about a business here that, that it's a, a few guys came out of college and decided they were going to attack the alternative, the alternative smoking industry. You're, you yourself have a, a, a vast amount of experience working in the tobacco business and you're actually also involved in putting together a team of people who all understand the dynamics of that industry, which is which is so essential to making a product like this successful. Exactly right. I mean, there, there are certain nuances that I think are very important in terms of commercializing a product like this, especially when your target market is actual smokers. There's certain things that you need to understand about the consumer what their preferences are, how they make purchasing decisions, what is it that would sort of help them gravitate to a particular brand, right? And that's why when we were looking at, you know, when I came in, I took a look at the packaging and I said, yeah, it's, it's not bad, but I don't think this is something that someone smoking a pack of Marlboro or Newport or Camel would otherwise gravitate to en masse. I think we need to kind of take a look at that again. So I studied every single pack of cigarettes that sold in the US. And there's certain commonalities that you start to see when you do that. And that's how we were able to develop the pack that we do. And with that, I think it's going to resonate much better with consumers. When you take a look at how a smoker buys cigarettes, I mean, most people will kind of look at it like a CPG exercise, but it's not. 
So you walk the aisle of a grocery store, you pick up two products, the packaging on those two products. Again, uh, I don't know, I'll go back to peanut butter because it just pops into my head. I really don't have that big of an affinity to peanut butter. I don't know why I use it all the time, but <laughs> you, you get a jar of Kraft and a jar of uh, Skippy. One of those jars is going to speak to you a little bit more than the other, maybe consciously, maybe subconsciously. It'll help you make a purchasing decision. If you enjoy the product, you probably go back and you buy your jar of peanut butter. Tobacco is not bought that way. You don't walk an aisle and pick up one pack of cigarettes over another pack of cigarettes and hope the branding speaks to you in one way. You go in, you ask for your pack of cigarettes, you get that pack of cigarettes, you put it in your pocket and you smoke it. There's a more intimate relationship with it because you carry it around with you all day. The branding at that point is not from helping you make a purchasing decision. It's a comfort that comes along with taking that pack of cigarettes and then putting it on a table when you go to a restaurant or a bar, at least when they're open. And it almost becomes a bit of an outward expression of who you think you are. That's why Marlboro, I think, succeeded as well as it did. The Marlboro man helped that in the 60s, 70s, and 80s tremendously because it created a brand archetype. And you pulled out a pack of Marlboro in some small fashion. Maybe you felt you were like a little bit of a cowboy, a little bit rebellious, a little bit, you know, free. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sadly old enough to remember the Marlboro man on uh, billboard advertising in uh, the UK when I was a kid, but it's, um, you're absolutely right. That, that, that branding was incredibly powerful. Right. So I think, you know, for us on top of the fact that I think there's a strong value proposition from the, for the consumer, both on the pricing and on the fact that you can effectively leave a, a, a nicotine addiction behind and then get that freedom to choose back, but to really help drive it home and get people to, to switch. There's an exercise in branding that needs to be done so that there's trust and comfort in that brand that, you know, when you pull that pack of cigarettes out, you know, there's there's a bit of a relationship that that the consumer would have with it. And that, again, is, is branding no different than any other product. So, you know, that's a piece that that's always very important to me. And, you know, as we further grow and develop, we'll we'll be investing more time and resources into that so that we can create brands with brand narratives and brand messaging and brand promises that uh, our consumers can otherwise believe in and, and feel good about making that choice. There's going to be a question that I think a lot of our listeners in Europe will, will be asking, and you probably don't have the answer to this yet, but um, in terms of timescale, when, when do you think this might be available in, in the UK and in European markets? Well, in the beginning, I think it's important to not lose focus. So I think the worst thing that can happen is you start chasing too many rainbows. It's an exercise for me and a disciplined, deliberate, strategic approach to commercialization. So in the beginning, we'll launch in Ohio. And then as we start demonstrating success there and bringing stores online and you know, introducing the product to our consumers and, and getting reorders, all these sorts of things, we'll, we'll start expanding throughout the U.S. based on the learnings that we can generate there. In conjunction with that, we'll start looking at various international uh, opportunities. And I would, I would say the U.K. is likely to be my next stop. That's great news for, great news for U.K. smokers, certainly. Yeah, 
I think that uh, there's a general receptiveness to a product like this. I think that the smokers in the UK are open to alternatives, which is why you've seen, uh, I think, the vape category expand in the UK. I, I do understand that there's certain pain points that come along with a vape that don't otherwise come along with a cigarette. And for a good number of smokers, they would otherwise prefer a cigarette. So if we can give them a cigarette to smoke that isn't addictive, that can still replicate that experience, then I think it's uh, it's something that a lot of smokers would would seriously consider. And I think that for a lot of smokers, they're open to the idea of an alternative. But for a lot of them, they haven't found it yet. They've tried, but they just haven't found one I think they can stick with comfortably. And hopefully, that will be that solution. Thing I think as a product is a it's a great idea. I'm I'm in a way I'm surprised it's it's not surfaced earlier than this because it does make it does make a lot of sense. Well, I think so too. Uh, but again, I mean, sometimes when you kind of take a look at um, legacy industries, they they otherwise become beholden to a certain framework of thinking. So, you know, the tobacco companies are going to use tobacco. You know, now they're slowly getting into the the vape category as well but they're otherwise looking to constantly deliver nicotine in various different formats again it goes back to the beginnings of our discussion i don't think nicotine is the thing that smokers actually want in fact i think they would make the switch to something else because nicotine doesn't do anything Right. I'll give you a quick example. You know, most people think that smoking calms you down. Well, smoking doesn't calm you down. The reason smokers feel that way is because nicotine as a drug has a half-life of about 45 minutes in the body. After 45 minutes or an hour, the smoker will start to feel agitated. Then they go and have a cigarette and they feel calm. Well, it's not calming. It's basically alleviating a withdrawal symptom. Smokers effectively walk around all day in perpetual withdrawal, which is a really terrible thing if you think about it. They're constantly feeding that withdrawal symptom. They're always chasing the withdrawal symptom. It's a, they don't think about it consciously. They have a cigarette and they think that it calms them down. If you give a cigarette to somebody who doesn't smoke, it won't calm them down. It won't do anything. You're otherwise anxious because you're physically in a withdrawal state. With our product, once you make that transition over to TAT, you'll never find yourself in that withdrawal state because it's not a drug that has an addictive element to it. Then I think from a smoking standpoint, you can smoke because you would otherwise enjoy to have a cigarette, not because you're fidgety and anxious and angry because your body's in a state of withdrawal. You know, when we were able to deliver that to smokers, they'd otherwise prefer it. I know I would. It's uh, it's a fascinating product, it really is fascinating. We're we're talking to you obviously here in the it's it's um, mid November. Uh, the Ohio distribution, I I believe, is about to take place. Can you? Is there anything else you can say about um, the, the next big um, mileposts on the development of the product and what what investors can um, expect to see going forward? Sure. So, you know. Commercialization, again, it's a rollout. So 
it's not something that you sort of flick a switch and all of a sudden you're in every store in the United States. It's uh, it's a process that perpetual well, it perpetually grows. So in the beginning, you'll get it out in a number of stores in Ohio, and then the work becomes in terms of bringing more and more stores on board every week, every month, uh, tracking against your reorder rates, making sure that the product is selling through, running the right programs with your retail partners. And for us, it's, I think, a, a long growth runway. And, and when we're able to start demonstrating that to the market, I think the, the understanding of what this company is starts to change. I think you said it a couple times already during this discussion. I mean, it's a very interesting idea. But we're at the point now where we're going well beyond the idea. We're getting this in market. We're going to put it in consumers' hands, and people are going to start buying it. Now it's real. And when we're able to demonstrate how real this is, I think the the opportunity for investors becomes extraordinary. You know, I use this example often just because it's uh, relevant and timely. But you take a look at something like Juul. Juul launched in 2015. Uh, by 2018, they had captured a significant share of the e-cigarette market and started making inroads on the nicotine market from a combustible cigarette standpoint. By 2018, Altria bought in a third at a valuation of $40 billion. That took three years. And they were really just in the US at that point. Then they started expanding into other markets around the world. So I think for us, as we're kind of getting off the ground, we've got a product that I believe smokers will find uh, an appealing alternative. I think we can offer a price point that any smoker can otherwise afford. Our margins would otherwise be in line with other tobacco brands that sell at a significantly higher price point. I think our marketing will be spot on. So, you know, you take a look at where we're at now. I think you know the stock's performed reasonably well over the last little while. But still, you know, you take a look at a comparable like Jewel. I'd say there's still a fair amount of runway to go. That's fantastic. I think I think you're right. I think there's a lot of a lot of massive scope for growth here. Massive scope. Thank you very much indeed, Seti. That's been incredibly informative um, for our, both us and our readers. Uh, thank you very much for, for coming on the podcast. We'll obviously be uh, following the company much more closely on the website going forwards as well. So readers can go there um, if you want to catch up on, on what's happening with TAT. So thanks a lot, Seti, um, and, and good luck with everything. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stuart. It's been fun.